Hi everyone, it's Joakim Akren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast, a podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. In this podcast episode, I'm talking with Salone Hall, who is a general partner at Lumikai Fund, which is a seed stage gaming fund focusing on the Indian market. I had Salone on my show in 2020, but since so much has been happening in the games industry, I wanted to bring her back on the show. So we're going to talk about what has been happening in India during the pandemic, what has been funneling the growth of the startups in the region, and what Salone has learned from helping founders build companies. All right, we're recording. Hi, Salone. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So excited to be back. We've always had great conversations and uh, so glad to be back for a refresh. Yeah, definitely. It's going to be interesting to hear everything you've been up to at Lumikai. Since we last talked, I think there's a lot of people probably in the audience who weren't listening back then in in the fall of 2020. Could you quickly introduce yourself and, and Lumikai to the audience? Hi, everyone. I'm Saloni Seibel. I'm currently the general partner at Lumikai. We're India's first dedicated gaming and interactive media VC. We've been uh, very fortunate to back some of India's leading games companies, which have included Bombay Play, which is building global hypersocial cross-platform games, Loco, which is now India's leading game streaming platform, LOLO, which is creator-led social gaming platform, amongst many others. I've been fortunate, I guess, from a personal and professional background from all sides, you know, have, I've seen the games and interactive industry from all sides of the table. I've been an investor, I've been an entrepreneur and, and an M&A banker. Prior to Lumikai, I was with London Venture Partners, which is a leading European uh, gaming VC. Before I transitioned to LVP, I was a CEO and co-founder of Truly Social, which was a venture-backed gaming studio building immersive social worlds for female audiences. And I spent the first six, seven years of my career in investment banking and private equity with Morgan Stanley, Barclays, with and have executed over $10 billion in M&A transactions. So here I am. A lot of good background for what you're doing right now, for sure. Yeah. Like, let's go and, and talk a bit about like unpacking what has been happening since we last talked a year and a half ago. What has happened in India specifically to the games industry and the games market there during the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, a lot has changed since we last spoke. I guess when we were just about entering the market, Joachim, we heard so many narratives about the India market. We used to hear things like India is a Dow farm. Indians don't pay for games. There's no depth in the market in terms of deal flow. Oh, where will the unicorns come from? How can you justify a sector-focused gaming strategy? And, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I think what Lumika and what we did differently was we had a thesis. And at that point of time, it seemed fairly contrarian. But, you know, the best time to invest in a sector is when it violates a narrative. And these were the narratives that were in play at that point of time. And while it doesn't seem like a very long time back, it, it still is and much has changed. And we were fortunate, I guess, to see some very key market inflection points, having tracked the global markets and having tracked the trajectory of markets like China and Turkey. And we've, we've traced some of these, these, these inflection points in, in some of the blogs that we've done. 
But since Lumica is launched in August 2020, now we have witnessed a billion and a half infused in the Indian games market. We have seen the emergence of three unicorns, including one publicly traded company, which was you know 175 x oversubscribed at the IPO. We've seen multiple global game strategics acquiring Indian companies. MTG has come into the market with its acquisition of Play Simple, Stillfront with Moonfrog, Flutter with Jungly, and we've seen the emergence of north of 600 plus game developers, and up from 25 three years back, and and still growing fast. And not just that, the market has turned a corner in terms of monetization and revenue generation. The Indian gaming market is now estimated to be about two two point two billion dollars, and we anticipate that to grow by three x to seven billion dollars by twenty twenty six. And much of this is driven by growth in mid core, core, and casual genres. IAP monetization has outstripped ad monetization and is expected to grow at a forty percent CAGR. And even more interesting, we have seen. Virtual gifting, tipping, subscriptions—so very new, novel forms of monetization emerging. And you know, so so the last you know two years has has been very seminal in the in the India market. Really interesting. Do you think that the the whole trend will continue? Still, there has been so much big growth. Is it like showing any signs of slowing down? because you know i think our prediction was that while the pandemic would accelerate i guess this this revolution this behavior that we're seeing is is habit forming right so so to speak when usage and engagement and retention peaked uh, during the pandemic and you know now we've gone back into some semi form of a lockdown again with this new third wave that usage behavior i guess users settled at a new normal They often went higher than the pre-COVID peak, and I anticipate that this 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 behavior is is now set. It's entrenched, and in fact, gaming has never seen better tailwinds, and and that is you know thanks to the lockdown. But but even I I think globally those trends are aren't going to change in terms of usage declining or engagement declining because we've seen this from from previous I guess exogenous shocks. Where gaming as a sector has been countercyclical and it has kind of emerged and grown uh, simply because of you know technological shifts, consumer behavior shifts, uh, device being devices becoming more powerful, people seeking more immersive uh, entertainment. So I think there's there's just been that mindset shift which is now here for good. If you if you then think about the the Indian games industry, what would you like to export from? The games industry in India, and what would you like to import to India from the outside? Yeah, that's a that's a such a great question. I I definitely say perseverance and tenacity from India. You know, the Indian games ecosystem has has of has been avoided. It's been overlooked. It's been underfunded and and been written off multiple times. And and yes, there have been. A lot of false starts, and there has been a certain degree of skepticism, and there haven't been, I guess, you know, too many believers in the India story. As a, as a result of which, risk capital was missing, and you know, hence innovation got stifled, and developers were hamstrung. Uh, this this is now slowly changing, but 
the tenacity of the Indian games founder is quite unparalleled. And, and I guess those who have played the long game, they have been rewarded. You know, whether it was Nazara games, which went IPO, and they've been in the business for you know, 18, 18, 20 years, or Play Simple or Moonfrog games, it reveals that there is merit in staying to your course, being focused and believing in your mission, even when no one else does. And I think that's definitely a very, very wonderful attribute, which, which can be exported. In terms of what I would import would be, well, definitely talent and best practices, right? And, and with best practices, I mean, you know, just fidelity of data-driven decision-making and, and a metrics-first mindset, because as the ecosystem evolves, as gaming becomes more mainstream, capital is now flooding the ecosystem, but very few capital providers really understand the nuances of building interactive businesses, right? And, and capital is only one of the problems facing gaming companies. You know, they need help with finding the right talent. They need aid in making data-driven decisions. They need to, how do you dissect user behavior insights and just cultivating a metrics-first mindset. I think that that's a very important, and that's again, a learning curve, which gaming founders and developers will, will go on. But that's something that I would definitely see that we could seek to emulate from, from more developed markets. Yeah, I think that like Finland has also been developing a lot in the data yeah. side and, and, that has accelerated so much from what it was five years ago to just what it is today. Like yeah. everybody embraces it. Absolutely. And, you know, there's no need to reinvent the wheel because there have been mm. markets which have done this. And hence, we should be able to drive those and build those bridges with markets who have gone down those trajectories. And I think that's incredibly valuable. And the games ecosystem is small still. It's collaborative. And as new founders who are coming from outside of the ecosystem who are attempting to build in this space, there's just a lot of knowledge that they need. And I think that's that would be very helpful to these founders. If you look at the, the global macroeconomics, capital being so much available out there, how do you think that this is affecting gaming and especially the, the Indian games industry? That's, a, again, another really interesting um, question because... Let's, you know, I, I think I'm I'm a student of I've studied economics and I've studied finance and I come from investment banking and private equity. I started my career there and I like to observe the world and you know everywhere you see, you know, symptom after symptom points to a world which is spinning out of control. You know, and you know, if I was to take a step back to answer that question and look at just macro global macroeconomics the data is is really staggering you know because the world's five largest economies now have a combined fiscal deficit of 7 trillion that's that's 12% of gdp you know that's unprecedented so essentially governments of the world have thrown money at people without the fear of consequences because we went through covid without a recession on the other hand on a macroeconomic level, you've got monetary policy, which is extremely loose for, for now 10 years. And OECD developed economies like the US, like, like Europe, have now inflation at 5.8%, but interest rates are zero. So basically, you've got governments telling people, go out and gamble. So if you look at the US economy historically in every bubble, 
you had a, a concept of you know something called margin to debt gdp ratio which which peaked at 3% which was a tech bubble or the great financial crisis margin debt to gdp is now 4.5% now this is essentially what people borrow to invest in the stock market so that's currently what's happening right now so you are in a world where people are investing money into the markets into new very risky asset classes because sovereign yields are so low people are looking for high yields so whether it's cryptocurrency whether it's alternative assets whether it's startups capital is free because it is literally free there is no cost to your money right now and the worst words in investing history according to me are this time it's different because we have seen this play out in the previous years now and you know we have and 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 as a sector gaming or let's say interactive there are tailwinds there are fundamental secular reasons for why this industry is doing well in there are fundamental reasons for why india is still doing well but there is no no i guess avoiding the fact that these there is a lot of inflation in these markets and that is because of global macroeconomics right now the market has not headed into a full blown plan, panic at the moment because there hasn't been a very high profile mascot of this crisis yet you know in, in the tech bubble it was pets.com in 2008 it was lehman 2022 hasn't had that yet so you know people aren't scared people aren't panicking at the moment but the malaise is showing right uh, it's very interesting but in 2007 right before the crisis you know bestearns and northern rock they started defaulting in in 2021 there are hedge funds which are blowing up archigos blew up and they lost 30 billion in two days uh, majority of the spacs are down 70% from the listing prices tech stocks are down so every where the public markets are telling us that things are not well and this is on the in, on the macroeconomic crisis now india as a fundamental growth market has not been i'd say insulated because every time in there has been i guess a flood of liquidity in the us market it has rushed to emerging markets and india has been a beneficiary of that capital and they have been a beneficiary across the board for easy liquidity people aren't really investing in china at the moment uh, temporary scare because of government actions and all of that is coming to india and very interestingly early stage deal flow in india's vc ecosystem grew more than china very for the very first time ever you know in indian india vc venture capital was around 35 billion dollars which was invested in the ecosystem last year now the i guess the worry for me is that gaming as a sector has of course seen tailwinds india as a sector has a strong growth emerging story but there is a whole new set of investors who are coming in and i am concerned about what happens when markets turn and what this you know future looks like now i could be totally wrong in the next next 24 months could look exactly like the last 24 months who knows but it is it's a very interesting time and it's i think important to be cautious when you're thinking of investment strategies i i've been looking at the whole mna sector now it's of course there was the the biggest deal ever that will will take care of the rest of the year regarding <laughs> like the total volume but like i think right just thinking about the the lower tier acquisitions that have been happening i think they will continue as long as there's talented 
smart executives at these companies who are attractive for the consolidation. So I think that's not going to change at all. So it's definitely going to continue. Completely. And, you know, you've got also there's a reason for M&A. M&A has become viable because of the, again, macroeconomic conditions, right? You've got unchecked liquidity. You've got an ease in acquisition financing. We're coming from a pandemic where, you know, company games companies, coffers, are at an all-time high. There are large war chests. And that makes it very, very viable for deal shopping. And with Activision and you know, with the current Microsoft deal, it made a very attractive target, right? It was a, a company which has great IP catalog. It has a declining stock price. It had workplace issues, delayed games, missed sales forecasts. It made for an incredibly attractive target. And that kind of M&A, as long as you've got well-capitalized buyers, especially in the gaming market, will continue. And, you know, we've, we've seen this. In, in gaming particularly, these waves of consolidation have come every couple of years. We saw this in 2010, 2012, right after the great financial crisis. We saw it in 2014, 2016, where there was a wave of acquisitions. And I believe that this year will will continue and be no different. But that's that's different because that's, inherent to the games industry this is being enabled also because of the macroeconomic environment hey talking more about financing these companies what have been your biggest learnings from your journey now into venture capital it's been a lot of uh, trial and error because there are no manuals i guess to venture capital you can learn um from people's experiences and you can read a lot, but you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's something which you can't train for. It's, it's a lived experience. And I think there have been a couple of, I guess, very important lessons, so to speak. One is, I guess, um, having a discomfort of, of learning how to be wrong. I think that's, that's very, very critical, right? Because it's very rare to be right all the time. And, you know, you're, it's, it's important to get comfortable with being wrong and it's important to have an agile investment strategy because, you know, when, as Keen said, when the facts change, you have to learn to change your mind. And as a VC investor, you know, you're told about having time discipline and price discipline, but it's important to realize when a founder is worth investing in, even at an elevated valuation, because as you build a portfolio, eventually valuations average out over the long term. But errors of omission, uh, which is missing a good deal, is far worse than errors of commission, which is doing a deal and it didn't work out. So I think that requires some time. And I think I'm still learning. Another, I think, key observation for me has been, you know, being, being mindful of hype cycles and noise. You know, there's so much noise nowadays around metaverse web3 and you know what and nfts and while the technology is really ripe for innovation these are still early days and there are a lot of punters and speculators driving companies and it's important to not be swept up in the noise and look at history because nfts digital tokens digital ips are not new to gaming most of these use cases were not new to gaming so hence it's important to stick to i guess what you can understand and what you can make sense of rather than to get swept with with just the wave and being driven by by FOMO, I think that's again a work in work in progress. I, and you know, and I think that's you know, these are all learnings that one one gets. I think uh, all through my investment journey, also I've seen that who you invest with matters, especially in environments like this. 
there are a lot of tourists, as you know, they call it, and, and founders are raising capital from a lot of non-traditional investors. Now, when companies hit tough times and, and that will happen, a lot of this capital will flee or be uncomfortable. So, you know, they, they can make founder life very hard. So it's important to raise capital with people who understand long-term venture cycles or who also have same horizons with you on, on supporting a founder's journey. And I think a lot of good companies can be driven and derailed when investor priorities don't, don't always necessarily align. And I guess the, you know, I guess a, a last kind of a approach in you know, somewhere, somewhere that I read that one has to be careful of this man with a hammer tendency or a woman with a hammer tendency, because for a, for a man with a hammer, uh, every problem pretty much looks like a nail. So, you know, it's, it's important to have an intellectual and emotional range. You have to read a lot. You have to invest a lot in personal growth and development. Yeah, I think another learning, which is just to summarize, I guess, this, these experiences is, you know, somewhere I read this was you, you have to be careful of um, a man with a hammer tendency or a woman with a hammer tendency. And it's a very interesting uh, concept. That is for, for a man with a hammer, every problem pretty much looks like a nail because if that you have, you'll only know, know how to use that tool. So as a VC, it's important to have intellectual and emotional range. You know, one has to read a lot, invest a lot in personal growth and development introspect and reflect at the end of the day, because venture is also about overcoming your own personal biases and seeing what others can't see. And again, that's, that's a constant work in progress. So for me, being a good venture investor is actually learning how to overcome your own personal cognitive, I guess, loads. And, and I think that's, that's important as well. Totally makes sense. Then thinking about like, you mentioned already Web3 there which is super hot right now, like even too hot maybe. But like, how much is Lumica involved in blockchain stuff? Are you personally studying it, spending time on it? And have you seen promising Indian blockchain startups already coming up? Yeah, there's a lot of activity definitely happening in India around blockchain. And, you know, I guess in terms of just blockchain infrastructure, you've got a lot of legacy organizations even in india starting to look at use cases and uh, you at least from a and i'll answer this question twofold one is on the regulatory aspect the second is around the what's happening in the startup ecosystem now on the on the regulatory aspect you've got niti ayog which is india's indian government's think tank they released a white paper which was highlighted a very positive view towards blockchain tech and even in financial services now you've got the indian banks which have joined forces to, to explore use cases. So there's definitely a lot more, I guess, industry-wide recognition of the use case on that technology. But I feel things are still a lot more race, uh, nascent in the market in spite of all the hype. And there have been some well-funded examples which have emerged in India, whether it's around the NFT uh, bit where you've got phase or you've got the Indian... DAO of Yield Guild, which called Indie GG, being, being launched in India and being funded in India. We, we do believe there are quite a few significant pain points that might prevent en masse adoption of blockchain and its implementation in gaming and NFTs. You know, there are technical barriers, there are financial barriers, there's lit, you know, just general level of literacy, ease of usage, 
environmental concerns, et cetera, which we need to overcome. And what we are very interested in seeing, you know, the use cases, which are very well thought out, founders with, you know, deep expertise and experience who are building in this space, um, those are very interesting from us. And, you know, we keep an eye very closely on this, on this market. How is your personal sort of like curiosity as a VC at looking at what is going on there? Is it too early to spend a lot of time? Because of course the projects are evolving like crazy, <laughs> like something that, that made sense now in Web3 is not going to be something that makes sense in 12 months. Yeah. No, my personal curiosity is very, very high. You know, as, as I said, you know, one has to read a lot and one has to keep abreast, uh, especially since the market is so dynamic and especially in India, right, which is still emerging. And India has a habit of leapfrogging market models. Like, for example, India's embraced mobile gaming and free to play, unlike the very linear trajectory of the Western markets, which went from PC, console, mobile, paid games to free-to-play, right? So that trajectory didn't happen. India just leapfrogged directly into mobile free-to-play. It's leapfrogged directly into social mid-core gaming. So one has to be very, very cautious and abreast of all these developments that are taking place and, you know, very keenly following the space. And I'd say I'm very curious i'm i'm currently straddling you know the believers and the skepticism on, on on that side because while we have seen some interesting companies in the space i think it comes down to eventually founder quality and conviction in, and in the space or landscape of what they're building and sometimes it feels very opportunistic right sometimes it feels like a metaverse or an nft is being uh, put in a deck simply because you know it's it's a great time to raise for, for for in this space at the moment, and it does feel like we're at peak hype cycle of this business. I think what will be very interesting is to see when the hype cycle declines and when we're in this actual trough of disillusionment, how many founders are true believers who stick around in this space to build genuine use cases? I think that is an incredible, that would be the time to really build and finance and find those, those winners, because those are the guys who will build in, in difficult times. And that will eventually set the course for what gets developed over the next, next eight to 10. Yeah, totally agree with that. Let's then talk about the startups you've invested in. Can you highlight some of the ones that you've invested in recently? Sure. Yeah, we've, we've, you know, we've been, it's, I guess, been an interesting time for us because the way we've approached the ecosystem has been from an interactive lens. So, you know, we looked at the ecosystem and we uh, divided it into essentially sub-segments and verticals where we said, we look at content, we look at platforms, we look at tool stack, and we look at infrastructure. And within that, we've gone and made bets within those ecosystems. So, you know, some of the bets that we did, one of them is a company called Bombay Play. And it's an incredibly interesting company. The team is you know, one of the best game designers and, you know, tech teams in the country, ex-Zynga, ex-Moonfrog founder. So, you know, experienced founders who have built gaming companies, who've built companies to scale, the industry veterans. And, and they are approaching the market with a very unique thesis in terms of identifying casual games, which are what they are calling sleeper categories, which could essentially be disrupted by live multiplayer social mechanics. And they're, they're, they're carving out a space 
for themselves in the hyper-social category. And, you know, they've crossed over 33 million downloads. They're at, you know, they've got 4 million monthly active users. And they're in, they're in a very interesting trajectory. And that's, that's one of the companies. And that's a company called Bombay Play. Then we've also backed a company called LOLO, which is, again, it's a platform play and very interesting audience focus and, and thesis on the market. They essentially saw an opportunity in the India market to build the next generation of interactive television. So it's essentially creator-led live social gaming platform. And what's unusual is that they have a 50% female demographic. They've got about you know north of 20,000 creators on their platform. 80% of the top creators are women. They've experimented essentially what they've done is that their platform provides Canva-like templates for enabling gameplay for creators to play with their fans. And they've seen 100 million gameplays on their platform. You know, they do these events with celebrities and influencers. They've already, they hit like 20,000, 30,000 users in, in a minute flat. And, uh, you know, their, their creators are starting to monetize from their platform and they're seeing early signs of virtual gifting and tipping also kick off in the market. And that's been a very interesting uh, play for us because it focuses on building a platform from India for India, focusing on tier two, tier three language speaking users. Whereas Bombay Play is building for India from the for the world. LOLO is a platform which is doing the you know doing has an opposite thesis, and that platform which is seeing some incredible uh, traction as well. Then there's you know obviously there's there's another company called Loco, which is India's leading game streaming platform. It's a mobile first Twitch, if you may call it. You know these guys are again you know very experienced founders building for the India market from India. Got five million monthly active users, north of forty thousand creators, and you know already seeing ten million watch a million gameplay and watch time just last quarter and again it's 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 really seeing a tremendous amount of traction and you know that's that's been interesting for us to see how in a very short period of time the thesis that we had on the market is starting to really prove itself out in terms of usage adoption redemption and even monetization as well so that's that's been very heartening what have you learned about helping founders what really works when you're providing help to them? Yeah, you know, I think this this also goes back a little bit to my experience as a founder having built a seed stage company, you know. I was building a company when capital was not so, I guess, so, so easily accessible. And even after I raised capital, I think as a founder, it was very apparent to me that capital is only one of the problems that you face, especially at the very early stage, right? That zero to one journey, the seed to scale journey has so many challenges and so many obstacles that capital can only solve some of them. That's not to be said capital can't solve any, capital can solve many problems, but it can only solve one of them. I mean, there is problems of who to hire, attracting talent, founders thinking about brainstorming, because at the end of the day, no matter how much capital, um, and there are companies which raise large, large rounds, and there are companies which are raising large rounds at the moment as well. But there is still, founders need help with strategic brainstorming. They need help thinking through culture. Uh, They need help with performance management, uh, professional and personal development, then, you know, help with raising the next round of financing, you know, how do you position your story? How do you even, you know, create your deck? How do you uh, approach the right investors? How do you look at pricing the round? How do you run a process? 
So all of this is something that as investors that we do. Also, I think, you know, talking about team and building culture, it's a very unique time in which founders are building businesses, right? Because founders are building businesses where there's remote working, they have constant lockdown. So, you know, there's a hybrid work environment. Often founders are building teams and hiring people who they've never met before. And how do you think about team integration? How do you think about aligning vision and values, especially at the early stage when you're, you know, running on a treadmill and you're down a path and you need to have momentum? I think all of those are problems that founders grapple with. And, you know, we've, we've hopefully been, in, been helping founders around, around this process. You know, at, at Lumikai, we also have a panel of executive coaches who we recommend to our, our founders. And some of our founders have done, you know, coaching sessions. Some of them have done team-wide workshops as well for, for I guess, aligning values and vision, et cetera, which is very, very important for building culture, especially in environments like this. So, you know, this is this is a little little snapshot of what we do. I think more importantly, it is to just be supportive of the founders and the journey that they're on and to recognize that not, not every business is going to grow at every point of time. And, you know, just understanding and recognizing the founder journey is often, often helpful, helpful for entrepreneurs. My format is that I do a lot of regular meetings, but do you yeah. want to, to be sort of like pushing help to them with these regular calls or do you more prefer to get pulled in to help them? When we uh, onboard a founder, we, we have a portfolio onboarding email that goes to the founders and it's got a list of resources. It's got a list of just just tips and, and strategies. It's got also a list of way we operate and we give the founders the ability to choose how they want to interface, whether you know they want weekly catch-ups, bi-weekly assistance on product, they want you know monthly catch-ups, or they want to stick to a quarterly format. It really does depend on, on the founders. We so far all our founders have opted, um, and many of them have opted for bi-weekly or monthly catch-ups. We're very involved even in product reviews and we'll test the product out. We'll give product feedback. We do competitor landscape studies as well, where we you know, look at the competition. We try out competitive products and we, we provide that feedback as well to founders. So we do let the founder determine uh, because at the end of the day, we're not running their companies. You know, we're not the operators and we're, we're facilitators. So we do let the founders determine how they want to interface and you know founders so far have found our assistance very helpful and they've all uh, put their hands up and said you know we need help and every month we ask them about how we can help them they give us you know structured three asks or four asks that they want from us and then you know that's how we keep ourselves accountable to the founder because the next month we'll we'll check in and say well this is what we delivered even when it comes to recruitment founders will put a, you know send us the job roles that they're looking for. And at Lumikai, we maintain a portfolio recruitment database where we uh, curate and, you know, keep keep uh, an eye on talent. And then, you know, those are profiles that we can share with our founders and founders have actually recruited people from our database as well. So that's been very helpful for founders as well. So I think it really does depend on how founders want to interface, but, but we're flexible and we have a certain template that we can follow completely or, you know, I guess, adapted to founder needs, depending on the scale and, uh, and stage at which they're in. That sounds really good. Yeah, I think this kind of onboarding form is something I need to look into as well. Before we go, 
to the final questions. What are the future plans for Lumika and where are you putting your attention now? Yeah, I think the you know the future obviously looks a little bit different from from the past. Building, I guess, with us the last one year, we were in build building mode, and we we still are right because building a brand from scratch in a new market is is hard. Uh, a lot of our work was was around undertaking ecosystem activities and evangelizing a new asset class and a new investment strategy. You know, we had a sector focus and a region focus. We were laying the groundwork for for research led thesis building and i guess it was it was a lot of work to throw light on a landscape which had limited believers right so but that's that's been done and we believe we've done a decent job of the above you know we now india also has seen a lot of global interest strategic and financial there are a lot of domestic vcs supporting the ecosystem now who are interested in investing in gaming uh, alongside a lot of international investors there's a new wave of founders being attracted to the capital and opportunities which is which has been heartening to see so i guess the next phase for us is to scale and help our portfolio achieve new milestones there are exciting portfolio developments which we're looking to announce in the next few months and i think overall look we're, we're committed to this market for the next 10 20 years to build a multi fund legacy and you know every action i will be driven to to achieve that yeah that sounds like Really interesting stuff. For some final questions, Salone. I remember I already asked you about your favorite book last time around, so I won't do that again. But have there been any recent books that you'd want to recommend? Well, I'm well. I'm currently reading a good one. It's called Damn Right. Um, it's behind the scenes with with Berkshire Hathaway's Charlie Munger, and I would definitely uh, recommend it. It's it's been great reading and very educational reading. So I've really enjoyed reading it. Yeah, I just finished uh, Snowball, which is the Warren Buffett yes, biography. Right, right. I haven't that actually read it. I, I'd love. I think that's probably. I'm going to take that on my list. Yeah, it's really good. How has your work with founders changed the way that you look at the role that investors play in this industry of gaming? I don't know whether it's changed in the sense I think there are a lot of greater operator turned VCs which is which have entered into the ecosystem and that's that's really great because you know there's I guess being a founder and an operator before puts you in a very unique position of really understanding the founder journey you know aside from just being a financial investor I think there's a lot of value add that can be that can be had but then that being said, there are uh, all kinds of investors who are now investing in the space and they're all shapes and sizes with all kinds of strategic priorities. I think our work remains unchanged is to work alongside founders and you know really help support them in any way possible. So that remains unchanged. But I think with a lot of operator-driven VCs, what it does is it builds a certain rigor and it will bring a certain empathy for the founder, which and a lot more risk capital, which was previously unavailable, especially in the games industry. So which I think is a very good development. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I can concur. And and there's more and more great competition coming into the VC. I think that's going to help the industry so much that it's like that we're not just relying on a few few funds that operate and then 
there's more in the early stage, later stage. So it's all looking really good. Absolutely. And, you know, even just the kind of materials or, you know, your posts that you put up, it's it's so incredibly useful as, as a founder just to frame that. And, you know, you bring this wealth of experience from being an entrepreneur, being an operator, and now being an early stage angel investor. Like some of your frameworks are 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 so intuitive, but yet so often forgotten um, that it's incredibly helpful to have have investors like yourself in this ecosystem and have investors on cap tables like yourself who can you know guide founders and help them make the right choices, especially at the early stage, which I think was was not available before. Yeah, th- thanks. That was really really kind words. I didn't expect it to to work this well. Like that that. It is a resource for the founders, actually. That's what I wanted to build. So I'm, I'm super happy that it's actually up and I running and working. You've made product market fit? I guess so. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, let's see when I can retire. As the last question, Salone, what is the best way for founders to get in contact with you? Twitter, LinkedIn, email, you know, try and be as responsive as possible. But yeah, those are those are the best, the best ways to reach. Nice. Hey, this was so fun to chat with you. We need to do this again in a year and a half to see where we are. <laughs> As always, it's it's always fun and such a pleasure. And, you know, thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Alan. Take care. Bye, bye. If you like our content, please hit follow or subscribe to our show on your favorite podcasting app so that you'll get notified when next week's episode is available. And in the meantime, please go and check out our website at EliteGameDevelopers.com and sign up for our weekly newsletter on what's happening in gaming startups. See you next time, guys. Bye-bye.